A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. breeder in America. Out of the 24 who were killed, were Americans who had come to learn in heaven. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late. And it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Welcome, everyone, to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehudi Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And this episode is the next uh, installment in our ongoing series of Great American Jewish Cities. And this one is on Montreal, and it has been generously sponsored and dedicated Lezecher Nishmas Reb Zev Ben Reb Pinchestein, whose 10th yard site was just this week and it's dedicated by his children and their families. He was someone who came from Czechoslovakia to Montreal soon after World War II and lived the rest of his life of over 60 years in Montreal. He was zeichet to raise together with our mother who should live and be well for many more happy years, a beautiful family of children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren who are all Erl Chobanei Taira. So we... um. Before we jump into Montreal, so I just wanted to mention that uh, you guys, everyone should keep your eyes out in the Mishpacha magazine this week. Um, there won't be, aside from a regular column of For the Record, there won't be just one little For the Record this week. We have another surprise uh, in store for you. Uh, so there's going to be two pieces for you to read, besides for everything else in the Mishpacha magazine, but in this context, about uh, history-related material. Um, I want to, before I, again, before I start, I want to thank two people who helped me uh, prepare this episode on Montreal. I want to thank a dedicated and very knowledgeable Jewish History Soundbites uh, listener, Avi Kapel, whose family is the one who generously sponsored the episode for providing sources, information, assistance, and stories, and uh, pointing me in the right direction in preparing this episode. And also to the legendary writer Sruli Besser, who despite being very busy with his recent book about Rabbi David Trank, which is already a bestseller, and if you haven't bought it yet, you definitely should go and do so. And even though he's very busy with it, he still gave, was very graciously had the time and gave of his precious time in providing information and helping prepare also uh, for this episode of Montreal, meaning that he's a native Montrealer. Um, so I want to start talking about Montreal in Minsk. 
How? Because one of my trips, uh, uh, not that long ago, um, seems like a long time ago because we haven't had any trips, but it wasn't that long ago. Um, I'm in the airport in Minsk. I'm waiting for the group to arrive, and they're coming on different flights. And there was already, part of the group had already assembled, and and um, and I, uh, I'm always very excited to get to a place like Minsk, especially during a winter trip, because I get to take out my Russian hat, my fur hat, and wear it, and you know, and it's it's fun. It's part of the excitement of the trip that you're in you're in Russia, and this participant in the trip he takes out his Russian fur hats. I said, hey, how do you already have to come, how do you have uh, come to have a Russian for a hat. He says, oh, this is not a Russian for a hat. I'm from Montreal. This is what everyone wears. You know how cold it is in Montreal? You think Russia's cold? Everyone wears fur hats to shul in Montreal, and it's not Russian. And uh, so, so that was an eye-opener. And uh, then then we had to go through uh, passport control, and in Belarus, um, they, they cause all kinds of trouble, and I'm telling the guys you have to make sure you have your health insurance uh, documentation to show with the passport and all the you know silly bureaucracy that the uh, Belarusian pas- um, border officials require you to have. And this fellow who was telling me about Montreal and the fur hats, he did not have his health insurance documentation in order, and he was very nervous about how he would get past passport control. I meet him on the other side, and I said, hey, how did it go? How'd you get through? And he pulls out a picture from his wallet of Reb of Kerastir, and he says, I showed them my health insurance, and sure enough, I was able to get right through. That's the story of Montreal. The story of Montreal, what I just told you, that's it. It's colder than Russia, lots of snow, everyone's got fur hats, and you get through the borders with Reb of Kerastir. So with that in mind, we can start discussing a little bit about this great Jewish community, sizable. It's about uh, 100,000 Jews and very diverse. Um, there's, de- you know, definitely uh, from all all streams of, of uh, within Judaism, not that much really reform or conservative, almost none. Interesting. It's different than the United States Jewish communities. But within the Orthodox uh, Jewish community, there's quite a bit of diversity. And especially for out of town, it's definitely unique um, a large yeshiva community, modern Orthodox community. Chabad is very prominent. Uh, Hasidic, very, with you know, different types of Hasidic groups there. Um, a lot of the Hungarian uh, background immigration from the post-war was predominantly Hungarian. Um, a lot, a lot of Sephardic, uh, very prominent Sephardic Jewish community from Morocco and other places, and it's a very old Jewish community from already the nineteenth uh, century like a, something that we're quite familiar with by now, of um, the, the immigration to, wasn't only to the United States, it was to Canada as well. And places like Toronto and Montreal had very large uh, large immigration during the end of the 19th century and early 20th. Now, the pre-war Jewish community um, built up, and, the, and the, it was a orthodox, modern orthodox, um, and, and, um, and that... that 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 remains as as a strong part of the community till today, and the pre-war community establishes the existing uh, infrastructure, 
that the post-war community that comes in as refugees, as survivors, as new immigrants, they're able to find an established community and build it up and develop it uh, in in many many parts. In other words, there wasn't there wasn't a need in the post-war era to come and build everything from scratch because a lot of the infrastructure was already in place. Just as a uh, as a more morbid example, which you know I'm always curious about when I research these communities where they where the cemetery came from and where that started. So the cemetery was from way pre-war. There's no need to make a new cemetery and things like that. The schools were built up and the shuls were built up. The the uh, one of the um, um, in ma- many in many different areas was uh, already there and and was able to be built up. So when the post-war Hungarian Jews, for the most part, European Jews, and lots of rabbis came right away, they were able to set up up a total infrastructure based on the existing infrastructure. And for an out-of-town place, it's quite astounding, the fact that by the 1950s and 60s, they already had a chal of Yisrael milk available, and and, uh, a haimish eshchita, and schools, which took a drop more time, um, compared to other out-of-town places, it's simply unheard of almost. Uh, anywhere out of New York uh, during the 1950s, it really did not have it, even certain places in New York. Uh, the In the general look of the town, it's a very European city. And uh, the reasons that in the post-war um, it, it becomes mainly Hungarian, like I mentioned, is a very interesting reason. The Hungarian Jews, the uh, Hitler invades Hungary only later on in the war. And the Holocaust in Hungary takes place towards the end of the war. So whereas Polish Jews or Jews from other countries had been under Nazi occupation for years, and they were in camps and in hiding, by the time the war is over, they have no home. They're displaced persons. They're classified internationally as refugees. Most of them don't have any documentation or passports or anything. And most of them have no capability of going home and reestablishing their communities. And since they have refugee status, in the late 1940s, it becomes possible for them to move to the United States. Um, of course, many of them move also to the new state of Israel. But where, on the other hand, Hungarian Jews, they mainly went home. They were only gone for a few months once the war was over. And many of them survived. Um, especially from the Budapest area, and they go home. And many of these Jewish communities in Hungary are reestablished in the post-war. It had only been less than a year since they had been home with regular normative Jewish life. It wasn't that much of a separation. And the communities are reestablished and rebuilt in Hungary. And therefore, the Hungarian Jewish survivors were not so easily classified as refugees. And it was therefore much harder and more difficult for them to enter the United States. And so when they finally did leave Hungary later on because of the communist government and the uh, limitations on Jewish life and religious life that it caused, and the real, and the real emigration from Hungary began once, once the communists take over and made it too difficult to live a Jewish life under the communists, so then they had to find different destinations, and that's why a lot of Hungarians made it to Melbourne and Australia, and to a certain extent in Latin America, there was communities of, of, of Hungarian Jewish survivors, and of course Canada, and that's why in Montreal um, has a very, very strong uh, 
compare, comparatively to other places, a very strong Hungarian presence. But that's an overall uh, view. And until today, there's a lot of coexistence within the Jewish community, but oddly enough, it's segregated uh, uh, neighborhoods. The modern Orthodox in one neighborhood, the Yeshivish in another, but Hasidic, Chabad, the Sephardic community, everyone is in their own neighborhoods, which perhaps if it's segregated neighborhoods adds to peaceful coexistence, perhaps it doesn't, but that's a debatable and that's definitely not part of uh, history. So if we go take a step back to the pre-war era about how it developed, one of the first most prominent rabbinical figures to arrive in Montreal was a fellow by the name of Yudel Rosenberg, who was a Polish rabbi. He was in, in uh, a Rav in Warsaw, in Varsha, in Lodge, and other places. A, a tremendous Talmud Chacham, very knowledgeable fellow. And he moves to Canada in 1913, pretty early on. And he first starts off in Toronto, but a few years later, in 1919, he arrives in Montreal. So it's immediately following World War One. And he was a very prominent rabbi there. He was the, the primary rabbi there, which I'll get to the rabbinical structure in Montreal in just a couple of minutes. Um, and he remains there till his passing in 1936. He works tirelessly for towards Shabbos observance. He literally begs people to close for Shabbos, and he comes up, he writes uh, very poetically and, and to try to convince them to close their stores. And he... And he uh, did, it was literally like a lot of rabbis at the time, but he uh, definitely became known for that, for try, making an attempt, a strong attempt at, at promoting Shabbos observance uh, amongst the Jews of Montreal, amongst the immigrant community of Montreal during the 1920s and 30s. He was a prolific writer, and he wrote classics for him, you know, even yeshivas for him, and yeshiva masechas like Nadarim, which are still used till today, he was well known for translating part of the Zohar into Hebrew, which was, you know, quite revolutionary also. But what made him really famous, or to a certain extent infamous, was his storybooks. And he wrote all kinds of uh, legends and mythology about people like the Spoiler Zayde, one of the early great leaders in uh, in uh, in Hasidus. But he spun all kinds of uh, legends about him. He even wrote about Raphael, who's Malach, right? Mimini Raphael, uh, you know, the, the Malach Raphael, he wrote uh, all kinds of legends about him too. But what made him most famous was the stories that he wrote about the Goylem of Prague, that allegedly that the Maharal had uh, had created, this Goylem who saved and helped the Jewish community. Now, it ended up, he based it off on some you know, um, questionable sources, but at the end of the day, he made up most of the uh, most of the stories, and um, and that made him, uh, like I said, depends if you want to say they're famous or infamous. About uh, and you know, I always have to disappoint the groups when I go to Prague and I tell them that you know, in all probability, the Gaelim did not exist altogether, and even if he did, all those stories about him definitely, uh, um, you know, didn't really happen. Um, in any event, he had a daughter who wrote an autobiography called The Errand Runner, which tells a lot about her father and growing up in Montreal and living there uh, at the time. But who was more famous in his family was his grandson, who was a very famous writer, Mordecai Richler, who wrote a lot about Montreal Jewish life and a lot of, you know, wrote in a very rich, descriptive fashion. And he was a very prominent individual in, in Montreal uh, 
literary circles and in, 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 and in Jewish life there to a certain extent. He was also became very prominent later on as very anti the, the French uh, Quebec movement and that whole political change, which I'll get to later. But when Herbutel Rosenberg, and then later on is the rabbi there, there's a very, very important institution that runs the rabbinical and Jewish communal affairs in Montreal, which is, again, a uniqueness that didn't exist in many other Jewish communities, and especially in the fact that it continues to a certain extent till today, and that's called the Vad Ha'ir. Had different names over time, Vad Rabbanim, Vad Ha'ir, and a chief rabbinate, and, and, and they always had a chief rabbi, and which oversaw Kashrus, and it's it, it, it's something that exists. That infrastructure, again, it exists till today. It's pretty much one of the only cities in the world that... Um, that still has that um, hospitals, that Jewish education, mutual aid, communal organization. It's founded in 1922, and in preparation for this uh, episode, someone uh, sent me a close to 300-page excellent doctoral thesis written by a fellow by the name of Stephen Lapidus. And I was nervous that if it would be from Montreal, it would be in French. It's not in French; it's in English. I obviously did not get a chance to read even a fraction of it, but it seems like a a Fascinating story, this Vad Ha'ir, that, um, that uh, you know, in the beginning, in the early years, the issues are kashras and the problematic butchers. That was always a top priority for the rabbinate in the early years, in the 1920s and 1930s. The attempt was to cre- recreate on the, on the European model, the Eastern Europe model of the all-encompassing kahila. Uh, of the Jewish community life, and that was the goal of the Vada'ir and the history of the Vada'ir, which adapted to the reality of America, which ultimately limits the scope of its activities. It's a fascinating study is how Kehila life evolves in the modern era in the New World because it can't recreate the all-encompassing Kehila structure, and that's why its activities ultimately become limited. But even with those limitations, the Vada'ir still uh, represents a an attempt at creating a Communal, communal and rabbinical uh, structure to oversee Jewish life. Another rabbi in the early years there was a fellow by the name of Rabbi Moshe Yomtev Vachtfeigel, who was father of his famous son, Rabbi Nassan Vachtfeigel, who was the uh, Mashkiach in Lakewood for many years. So his father was a rabbi in Montreal. He was one of the original original 14 Slabatka Talmidim, who was known as the Yad HaChazaka, Yad is 14, who were sent by the altar of Slabatka to Slutsk with Rabbi Zalman Meltzer to found the yeshiva in Slutsk. Later on, he was a rabbi of the Litvish town, the Lithuanian town of Kul, where his son, Rabbi Nassim, was born. Side note, the pun of Ijerov, Rabbi Zalman Kahneman, was also born in the town of Kul. He was known as Yasha Kuler. And, um, and later he moves from Lita, uh, Rabbi Moshe Yom Tovachtvogel, and he becomes a rabbi in Montreal in the 1920s. Reb Nassim uh, his son, he stays on and learns in Kelm and then later joins him in Montreal. Um, but then he doesn't stay there that long. He goes over to, he goes to New York. He's in, in Yeshiva University, which was then Yeshiva College, Reb Khanan. He then goes back to Europe, learns in the Mir, and in Kelm he marries the daughter of a European rubber, Bistol Shlamovitz, who was actually at an earlier time a mashgiach in the Mir Yeshiva, and then he escapes at the beginning of the war together with his wife um, to Australia, where they're shipped right off to Canada. The Jewish community in Australia wasn't interested in having 
uh, yeshiva guys there, so they sent them back to Canada. So he's back in Montreal, but again not for a long time, because shortly afterwards he founds what would become eventually Beis Medrashkova in White Plains, New York, and invites Rabbi Aaron Cutler to participate in that endeavor. His partner in a lot of this activity was a, another famous individual, Rabbi Shmuel Shechter. His son is a prominent Rashiva in Yerushalayim today, and the two of them were Montrealers who uh, studied in the great European yeshivas. But what really uh, changed uh, Montreal and the impact on uh, Jewish life and religious life in Montreal was the arrival of Rapinchas Hirschsprung. And he really made a huge impact on uh, Montreal uh, Jewish life. Um, a fascinating individual. His memoir, one of the few Rabbanim to have a, uh, a very impressive memoir about his life, is is also you know a good read and, and try to get your hands on. He was a a uh, grew up in Galicia, in a little town called Dukla, which is not far from Rimenov, in literally in so- southern Galicia, the little southern tip of Poland. And he's in a grows up in a chesedish home. He goes off to yeshivas Chachme Lublin at a young age, where he's, he becomes a close student of Rameir Shapiro. He used to talk about him for the rest of his life about what a personality he was and stories, and he very much enjoyed sharing his memories of Rameir Shapiro later on in life. And at the beginning of the war, he escapes uh, to Vilna and then to where he encountered Reb Chaim Grzegensky, and he used to relate stories that he had with him as well. He really was exposed to all the greats of his day, and he escapes to Shanghai, but he doesn't stay in Shanghai till the end of the war. Right after he arrives in Shanghai, he somehow makes it to Canada right before Pearl Harbor, and um, which was rare. And he makes it in 1941 to Canada, where he arrives in in uh, in Montreal. It's interesting, Rabbi uh, Rachel Schechter once told me that that um, that Hirschsprung told him. That he was, you know, he was an absolute genius of Hirschsprung, a genius in a real way, a phenomenal memory. He knew Kulatari Kulu, he knew everything, and again, in a genuine way, not in, not in the usual exaggerated way. He really, really did. And from a young age, he told Rav he said, from a young age, when he arrived in, shortly after he arrived in Chachmi Lublin, he was already the Boichen. He was the one testing the new um, candidates who were applying to come to the yeshiva. So you're talking about someone who was completely unique, and he actually expressed his regret that he never had a childhood because he was such a phenomenal student and learner and knew so much. And you're talking about someone who was the Baichin when he was a young single bacher in Chachme Lublin. And he, and he said, I never had a childhood, and it's, it's a pity I never had a childhood. It's something that every, every child needs, and it's part of their development. Uh, either way, so uh, he, he was, uh, when he was, he comes to Montreal, he was very closely affiliated with Chabad. He started the, and he was the Rashiva in the Yeshiva's Taimchetamimim in the town. He took over the, the, um, basically a bankrupt uh, girls' school, Grand Base Yaakov, and he really built it up from scratch. He was, you could even call him the founder, to a certain extent, of the Base Yaakov. In 1953, he restructured it together with uh, Mr. Tzudik Mandelkorn, and the two of them together was were able to really build up the um, the Base Yaakov school. And it was a true community school to serve the entire broad spectrum of the Jewish community. And then the Rav Schneir Eisenstark was brought into as the principal, who was a master mechanic, and then it really takes off as a, an impressive school uh, with uh, that achieved renown. 
and he was very much involved in the Beis Yaakov. Princhas Hirschsprung, though he was the eventually, you know, he served as a rabbi first in the Vada year, and he's Rashiva and Taimchei Tamimim, and he was eventually the chief rabbi of of uh, of uh, of uh, Montreal for over, over about thirty years until his passing in nineteen ninety eight. But he was very heavily involved in the in the Beis Yaakov. That was his baby. That was the, that girls' school. He would fundraise for them even. And incredibly enough, there was once a uh, member of the community of Montreal who passed away and willed his assets or a significant portion of his assets to stuck to charity. And the Rav was supposed to be the executor of the will. In other words, he was going to decide how to dispense to the local institutions. And he gives and he allocates different funds from this will to the different institutions, but he doesn't give any money to Beis Yaakov. So he said, why are you giving to your Beis Yaakov? So he said, because of that, because it's my Beis Yaakov. Since I'm involved, I can't be impartial. I have Nagias, so they're not going to get anything. And that's the type of person of Princhas Hirschsprung was. And he was very close also with the Satmarov. He was very influential on the entire Montreal community in all the aspects. He was the Avbezdin, he was the initiator and builder of a lot of the institutions. He was very beloved by the Balabatim, by the locals. He was, in a certain way, he was the uh, he was a real community rabbi. In another way, he, he was very distant because he was such a huge Talmud Chacham. So he was not actively involved in a lot of things, but, but uh, he was very close with the people. He was very beloved by the people. In fact, his first Rebbe job was to take over one of the Altamirs who were in Montreal at the time, Rebbe Elie Chazan. Um, who had a uh, position in the yeshiva in the 1940s in uh, in uh, in Montreal, and he was in the 1950s maybe, and um, Rebbe Chazan was was offered the position as the Rosh Yeshiva in Tervadas. He was going to go down to New York, and he offered Rapinchas Hirschsprung to take him over in his capacity as as a Rebbe in the yeshiva in Montreal. So Rapinchas Hirschsprung said, "You're a Litvak." And I'm a Galicianer, Hasidish Galicianer. Why are you offering me a position in this Litvish yeshiva? So he said, because I'm not sure if this position in New York is going to work out. So I need someone to take me over that's going to be a good Rebbe. But also he's the type of guy that if I need to come back, he'll, he won't uh, insist on keeping the position that he got. He'll clear out the place back for me if I need to come back. And you're that type of guy. You're going to be a fantastic Rebbe. But you'll also let me uh, take it back if I need to. Well, Rabbi Chazan didn't need to. He stayed in New York as the Rashiv and Taravidas, and Rabbi Hirschprung uh, got his first Rebbe position. And um, see, so he's part of the, uh, the Vader Abonim, the Vader at a young age. And he's the example of what I was mentioning before, of using the pre-war existing Jewish infrastructure in Montreal, such as with the Beis Yaakov, such as with the Vader and he raises it to the next level. That's what, that's what he did. He took what was there and brought it to the uh, to the new uh, to a new level. Um, one of the prominent uh, early Montreal families who was involved in every Jewish endeavor in Montreal and beyond was the Drazen family, Shlomo Drazen, Joe Drazen. There are several generations of the Drazen family that were basically one of the founding families of the Montreal Jewish community, and they were big supporters of the Torah causes from the pre-war period of the yeshivas in Europe. And then in the post-war, when there are refugee Torah scholars arriving in Canada, arriving in Montreal, they open an institution to support them as refugees. And they're involved at every stage, which again enhances the, uh, the, uh, the, the 
the religious life, the Torah life in the city because of people who were able to receive them like the Drazens were. And some of the prominent individuals who arrive in the post-war was actually a group of Altamirs from Shanghai. Um, and uh, from Shanghai or from wherever they escaped from. Um, not only not all of them were from the Mir. There was a very famous Rabbi Uncle Magid or Ram David Nizhnik, who later on became the rabbi after Rabbi Hirschsprung passed away. Rabbi Label Baron, who was also a rabbi in the yeshiva. Um, they, he'd actually been in Baranovich, in, in, and he even wrote a short memoir about his years in Baranovich, which is also uh, very revealing. There was Ramesh Koyen, who was a Kletsk. There was a Hechtman, which his first name is, is escaping me now. And there's a few others. There's actually a nice group of Altamirs in this place that was predominantly Hungarian and Hasidish. You had uh, some uh, um, Litvak uh, Altamirs there as well. Another very interesting or actually a problematic character who was there for a few years in Montreal in the 1940s was a fellow by the name of Aaron Kagan. And his father was the Chafetz Chaim, no less. He was from the Chavetz Chaim's second marriage, and he and uh, and Rebetzin Zaks, uh, Remendel Zaks's wife, Hegi Zaks, were the children of the Chavetz Chaim from his second marriage. And this Aaron Kagan was a was a was an issue. He never seemed to really, um, you know, he was a problematic character. We'll leave it at that without getting too much into details. He never got married, but he was the rabbi of the Kenyan Tyra Shul for a couple of years in Montreal before he moved down to New York. Um, one of the most prominent and old shuls in Montreal was the Shar HaShemayim shul. A lot of famous individuals there, rabbis, over the years were there. We'll try to get back to the Shar HaShemayim shul later on. But um, but one of the next stages in the post-war era, uh, what changes, what influences Montreal was the arrival of Ramatul Weinberg and the building of the yeshiva. Um, uh, Ramatul Weinberg, who was a fascinating individual, in fact, when he was born in 1929, so he was from a prominent family on the Lower East Side. And uh, Reb Shimon Shkup was in the United States at the time. He was fundraising, and then he was the Rosh Yeshiva in Rabbi Yitzchakon in YU. And, and so the Sandik of Ramatul Weinberg was the great Reb Shimon Shkup, who happened to be in America. So he, this American-born um, future Rosh Yeshiva had Reb Shimon Shkup as his Sandik. And then he goes on to study at the Tels Yeshiva, the newly opened Tels Yeshiva in Cleveland, and becomes one of the closest, uh, if not the closest, uh, Talmud of Rebellion Meir Bloch, the great Tells of Rosh Hashiva. And he completely throws himself into Tells, a tremendous masmid, very diligent and studious. He would he would never leave the yeshiva. He would be there for months at a time. When once he ventured out to take a walk from the yeshiva on a Shabbos afternoon, he was all surprised by the cars driving in the streets of Cleveland. So his friend who was walking with him says, what are you so taken aback? This is America, you know, people drive in cars on Saturday afternoon. What are you getting so excited about? She says, no, 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 I understand. It's, I don't have any issue with it. It's just I haven't left the yeshiva for several months. I'm just not used to all this busy traffic on a Shabbos afternoon. That's how he developed in his younger years. He was a very dynamic, very exciting personality. Um, he was later a yeshiva in the yeshiva of Eastern Parkway, which was almost like a branch of Chaim Berlin, but then he comes up to Montreal in uh, in the 70s. Um, unfortunately, he passed away quite suddenly at a relatively young age. He was in his 60s in 1992. But for the last 20 years of his life, 
from 1972 till, till 1992, he was in Montreal. He was brought in to build a real yeshiva. There were several yeshivas already in Montreal, but they wanted a high-level yeshiva, the Merkaz HaTayra of Montreal, Mr. Schechter, and a cadre, very prominent group of Balabatim, who were dedicated to building a yeshiva. They first bring in another Telzer, Ramesh Mendel Glustein. May live and be well. He's, he's uh, also from Tels to start it. That was the high school. But then afterwards, they bring in Ramatul uh, Weinberg to become the Rosh Yeshiva of the Americas at Hatayri Yeshiva. But his influence was way beyond the Yeshiva. It was on the larger community as well. He was a very strong personality, very uh, uncompromising in his ideals to build up um, B'nai Taira in Montreal and very fatherly to his uh, to his students. Later on, when after he, his passing, Beltuski was the Rashiva, then Rabbi Bistritz, and uh, and today actually one of the prominent uh, Rabbi and the Yeshiva is a grandson of of Ramatul Weinberg. There was day schools in Montreal already from before the the um, the Adaf Israel day school was one of the first ones, if not the first one. It was it was a co-ed school where most of the children did not come from Orthodox home, but many but, but the mainstream Orthodox families would send there. And later on, it merges in the 1960s as the Hebrew Academy. And uh, what happened by high school is that parents, Orthodox parents, had to make a decision. Should they send to a Jewish school that's co-ed, or they, should they send to a secular high school, a non-Jewish high school, that it was an all-girls school? And many of the Orthodox uh, parents would send to the all-girls high school rather than to the co-ed Jewish school. That's a big decision to be taken in the 1950s and 60s in Montreal until the community develops. Um, interestingly enough, when we talk about the elementary schools and the day schools, so it's probably the only city in the world that I know of that the, that two of the, there are several elementary schools, but two of them of the elementary schools are called Yeshiva Gedayla and Masifta, which are usually for older guys, but Montreal, maybe it's in French, I don't know. And to top it off, for many years, Weddings took place in a wedding hall called the Hever Kadisha Building, which is a fantastic outlook on marriage um, and, uh, you know, a strong message sending to the young couples to get married in the Hever Kadisha Building. Um, so the, what happens is, is the, is the, um, is in the 1960s and 70s, the French movement, the Quebec, first uh, French language, nationalism, and and uh, and then eventually they want to make uh, you know secession um, much later on the nineties, um, which was an unsuccessful uh, movement. But the but the French as a as a identity and as a language and uh, and uh, as a very strong uh, emphasis on the language becomes very prominent, and that leads to a shrinking of the community. There's a lot of emigration leaving Montreal as far as the Jewish and Orthodox Jewish community is concerned with these political changes. And it becomes very detrimental to the Jewish community. Um, there's even anti-Semitism. The whole French thing uh, brings it with it anti-Semitism, a certain element of anti-Semitism. And, um, and it's important to note the role of how language and nationalism works. It's actually a huge topic and probably for an episode on its own merits about uh, how nationalism and language goes together and how la- a language that you know, there's very often a gap within a society that the elite, the aristocrats, the wealthy of a society speak one language, and the commoners, the peasants, the labor class, the working class speaks another language, 
And as nationalist identity develops, so actually the common man language becomes a very focal point of nationalist identity. It happened in many of the countries of Eastern Europe where Jews lived, like Lithuania and Ukraine and other places. And, and there was always a question which language uh, the Jews spoke. And I mentioned, just mentioning Hungarian Jews in Montreal, the Jews of Hungary spoke Hungarian, not Yiddish, including the Hasidim. And uh, that's, again, another topic. And uh, it's actually a fun topic. Let's try to get to that one day. Either way, but... Um, but uh, the language police becomes a feature of uh, Montreal uh, life. And many leave to Toronto, to other places. The French things really affect education. Stores, stores have to all of a sudden be speaking in French. And the signs are in French. And the labels have to be in French. There's this uh, story that, had, that took place. And again, it shows you how it affects can affect Jewish life about importing for food from New York, kosher Pesach food from New York, and then there was a glitch in the system, and the labels on the food products that were shipped into Montreal, the French wording wasn't large enough, and the French police stopped it, the language police stopped it, and therefore, you know, there's a food shortage for Pesach, and it sounds like a bizarre, crazy story, but that's that's part of uh, the only city in the world that has language police, that are measuring the words and making sure that the French is larger, and it affects the educational system because there really isn't a separation between church and state in uh, in uh, Quebec or in Canada. And therefore, the Jewish schools get government funding. In fact, Jewish schools were legally recognized for many years as honorary Protestant schools because there was no classification for Jewish schools altogether, which was a very tenuous uh, legality situation until it was rectified in recent years. But... This gives you know the transience, the sense of, of of insecurity that the government can influence the curriculum because they're the ones providing the funding, and they're going to say that you need to study math in French, you need to study everything in French, and it can uh, you know have a, an effect on the Jewish life that takes place, uh, and uh, but they are able to get past that. Also, we're going to move along to Hasidus in Montreal, and of course, the best example of that is the Tosher Rebbe. The Tosh Hasidus was a very, very Hungarian Hasidus. It was an offshoot of the Zidich of Komarna dynasty, which was a very Kabbalistic Hasidus. The first Rebbe originally was Meshulam Faish Lovi, who was the name of the last Rebbe also, his namesake. And he was a Hasid of Rebbe Isaac of Komarna, among, among other Rebbes. His son, Rebbe Elimelech, was named after the Rebbe Rebbe Meilech. He becomes the Rebbe following his father's passing. And like most Hungarian Rebbes, he was the rabbi of the town and the Rebbe. He passes away in 1942 of natural causes. Remember, 1942, there's no world, there's no Holocaust in Hungary yet. And um, so one of his sons had moved to the United States before the war. He was the Chist Tush Rebbe in New York. But another two, including the father of the last Rebbe, were killed by the Nazis. So we have the next generation, the grandson, who's also a Meshulam Feish, He's a survivor in the labor brigades, like most Hungarian Jewish males, which is also a story. A lot of the um, young and middle-aged Hungarian Jewish males were not sent to Auschwitz because they were in the labor brigades drafted into the Hungarian army, which was not a, uh, which was not a fun place to be. But um, a lot of them were able to survive that way while their, while their families were, unfortunately, after the Nazis invaded, sent to Auschwitz. So most of his family is killed. And after the war... The 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 uh, the Tasha Rebbe 
becomes a Rav and a Rebbe in Hungary until 1951 when it becomes too difficult under the communists. So he, he, uh, he goes back. And that's like what I was saying before. He, sorry, he leaves. He goes to Canada. That's what I was saying before about how the Hungarian Jews go back home. And then they're not refugees anymore. And that's why many of them end up in Canada and not the United States. And Kehillas literally flourished in Hungary for the years after the war. Many survivors simply went back. So in 1951, he moves to Montreal, where he had some of the some of his surviving siblings had settled down, and he rebuilds Tush. But a few years later, 1963, he moves out of the city. Again, he's a Hungarian rebbe, so he wants to build a kehila, a community, and it's not just for his Hasidim; it's for anyone who wants to join it as a community. And he's the rabbi, he's the rav of this kehila, and he's the leader, and he's a rosh yeshiva. He wanted his own yeshiva. And he's a Rebbe. He builds literally a shtetl. And he starts with 18 families, but it grows. And later on, he's one of the only, probably the only Orthodox leader in Montreal to support the, the secession movement of Quebec. And ideologically, he was close to Satmar and the Edecharedis, very well known for his davening, his impressive davening, his long davening, very fatherly figure. People would come to him from all backgrounds in the diversity of people coming to seek advice for him, and uh, and many people felt connected to him, his warmth, his responsibility that he carried for uh, for the Jewish people. His later years, he he was almost a legend beyond, uh, beyond you know, more larger-than-life legend. He was the elder of the Rebbe's, the Zkan HaAdmairim, and definitely the best-dressed one by far. He, I used to love looking for the pictures of his... Um, his his uh, his different beckages and really amazing uh, amazing wardrobe. Either way, we go on to Chabad in Montreal. They're a very very strong presence from early on. The Friedrich Rebbe, the previous Rebbe, sent a group of Hasidim in nineteen the early nineteen forties. Or Wolf Greengrass, or Gessel Weinberg. Later on, Rebbe uh, Reb Herschel Feigelstock, who had the distinction of being the Shliach to Montreal for over seven decades. I don't know how many Shlichim out there can claim that distinction. And uh, they set up the first Haimisha place in Montreal with a mikvah and coffee. So a lot of the survivors who arrive a couple of years later, they feel very comfortable and hang out there. And they become a very strong presence. Um, in fact, Rabbi Herschel Feigelstock's brother is Rabbi Yitzhak Feigelstock, the Rashiv in Long Beach. So one became a major Chabad Shliach. They were originally from Vienna. They escaped to England. They were deported from England to Canada. And there was a, a Chabad yeshiva that was getting started, was getting off the ground. And he began, Rabbi Shaf Feigelstock began teaching there in 1945. He maintained a very close uh, relationship with the, first the previous Rebbe, and then the next, the next Rebbe, Rabbi Nacho Mendel. And, um, and, and Chabad really um, maintained a strong presence, building institutions, having their own shechita. There's also a large Satmer and Bells community, very unique for an out-of-town. Again, large presence of Satmar and Bells, each with their own shechita, each with their own institutions, the whole works. And a lot of the big rabbis of the world, like the Belzer Rebbe, the Vision Rebbe, and Eretz Yisrael, many others, they visit Montreal because it's, it's as far in the Hasidic world, it's on the map, though it's outside of New York. Another interesting side note was a early Rebbe who arrived in Montreal. Um, the Tolna Rebbe, and the Tolna Hasidus Started by Rav David of Tolna, Rav David Tversky of Tolna, who's the son of the Chnabel Magler, or Matl, 
And his son, Menachem Nachum of Tolna, was the Rebbe. His children moved to America. One of them who moved to America, one of the earliest Rebbes to move to America, was Rabbi David Mordechai. He goes to New York. His son is Rabbi Yechanan, and he studies, he grows up in New York. He goes to learn in Eretz Yisrael in the 1920s, also very rare. When he comes back, he moves to Montreal, and he opens a Hasidic Shtibel, and he becomes a Talmud Rebbe. This is in the 1930s. And he was very active in the Varat Sola, in rescue work during the war. He helps Chabad, who I just mentioned before, set up shop in Montreal. In 1956, 20 years after he was in Montreal, he moves to Eretz Yisrael, and he settles down first in Shari Chesed, then in Beit Akerem, then in Bait Vagan. He becomes, ironically, this Talmud Rebbe becomes a Gera Chassid, and at the same time, he's the Talmud Rebbe. His son was Mizrahi, and his grandson is the current Talmud Rebbe, who is also, not surprisingly, a very prominent Gera Chassid. He was, of the Pnei Menachem, a very close Chassid, probably the closest Chassid of the Pnei Menachem of Ger. Another prominent Rebbe who lived in Montreal was the what was then the future Skelena Rebbe, and now is the current one who just became recently with his father's passing, Rabbi Shai Yaakov of Portugal, who was a very beloved Rav in Montreal for many years. He was the rabbi in the Ma'or HaGoyla, which I'll get to in a second. What was the Ma'or HaGoyla Yeshiva, Shul? Um, and he was a Rav there for decades, very beloved, very popular. And, uh, and Montreal was actually sad to see him go, and he had to go back to Borough Park to take over his illustrious father's position as the Skelena Rebbe. I mentioned the Ma'ar HaGoyla. What was the Ma'ar HaGoyla? There was the famous uh, rabbi who survived the Kovna Ghetto, Rephraim Ashri, who wrote also books about his experiences in the Kovna Ghetto and, and halacha questions that he was asked, and very famous personality. So after the war, he becomes a Rav in Kovna of the newly reconstructed, very small, minuscule Jewish community in Kovna. But shortly afterwards, he leaves, he moves to Rome in Italy. He starts a yeshiva in Rome for survivor teenagers, yeshiva guys, called Ma'ar Hagayla in Rome. In 1950, he picks up the entire yeshiva and he moves it from Italy to Montreal. And he keeps the name Ma'ar Hagayla. In 1952, he leaves Ma'ar Hagayla behind. He moves to New York. He becomes the rabbi in the Beis Medrash Hagadol on Norfolk Street in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. But Ma'ar Hagayla stays in Montreal and stayed on as a yeshiva and later on as a shul. Another a very prominent Hasidic individual who was in uh, uh, Montreal was was the Puparov. His name was Reb Yitzchak Yaakov, or Yaakov Yitzchak Naiman. Uh, his brother was a prominent member of the Israeli government, Yaakov Neeman. And uh, he was probably the most prominent and important Belzer Hasid in the world. Um, this, this, he, he, was in, he was a rabbi in Puppa. After he survived the Holocaust, he was a rabbi in the Rav in Puppa for a few years. Like I said, a Hungarian Rabbanim would go back to the towns and try to build it up until they were forced out because of communism. But he was actually named, he was called later on in life, Rabbi Yaakov Yitzchak. His name that he was given at birth was Yitzchak Yaakov, and he was named for Rav Reines. Rabbi Yitzchak Yaakov Reines, the founder of the Mizrahi, the Rashiva in Lida, and his mother was actually a niece of Rav Reines, and that's what he was named for. He switched around the names later on in life because he did not want to be, have that association that he's named after Rav Reines, the founder of the Mizrahi, and uh, but he was one of the most important uh, Belzer Hasidim in the world, probably the most important. Very close with Belz, very close with the Rebbe's family, and he survives the war. He makes it to Australia, 
And then he moves, I said he was the Rav in Puppa, and then he was in Melbourne, and then he makes it to Montreal. Now, so he remains very closely affiliated with Puppa and Bells, but especially Bells, because after Rav Arla Belzer, the Belzer Rebbe, passed away, so the current Bells Rebbe was a young child. So this, he keeps the Hasidus going, Rabbi Yaki Yitzchak Naiman, and he mentors the Belzer Rebbe. He walks down the Bells, the current Belzer Rebbe, to the Chuppah. He's the one who walks him down. He is the guy of Bells. Very well liked. Uh, he held the neighborhood during the mi- internal migration of Montreal in the 1970s when a lot of the Orthodox community was moving to the other side of town. He keeps the Hasidish community near him, and it becomes essentially a Hasidish neighborhood. Um, another individual was uh, Rav Shmuel Unzdorfer, who was an Oberland Hungarian Jew, and but he came close to Hasidus. He became close to the Kleisenberger Rebbe. He's actually the father-in-law of the current Tzanzer Rebbe, and he had the Masifta, the Masifta Shul and Yeshiva, and later on he moves uh, to Eretz Yisrael. His son, who's the rabbi now in Montreal, has the distinction of being the Chavrusa of the Satmar Rebbe of Aaron Teitelbaum. Uh, Montreal has a famous philanthropists like Hershey Friedman and Michael Rosenberg, who's affiliated with the Tzans that I just mentioned. It's interesting to note, though, those ones are famous, but it's interesting to note that the Reichmans, who are famous for being in Toronto, actually started out in, in Montreal. One of the other important Jewish communities in Montreal is the Sephardic Jewish community. Um, big Moroccan Jewish community presence. When the Moroccan Jewish emigration in the 1950s and 60s, mainly they're immigrating to Israel and France. Remember, the, the language of Moroccan Jewry was French. It was a French colony. Um, and, and therefore, Montreal became a destination, especially the government encouraged people who were French speakers to settle down in Montreal, in Quebec. And they, they wanted it. They wanted to make more of, of, uh, of, uh, of you know, French as a, uh, as, a, as an identity, and therefore it was very easy for Moroccan Jews to settle down there, and they built again their own infrastructure, their own community, their own rabbinate, their own chief rabbi today, chief rabbi is Rabbi David Sabah, and uh, many other rabbis, and they even have a very vibrant community with a koil and everything. Many of the restaurants are, are uh, Sephardic-owned, but there's some prominent uh, uh, Montreal restaurants um, independent of the uh, that are, that predated that, they have Chesky's Bakery and Pizza Pita, um, which only in Montreal a bakery is considered a prominent restaurant. And and uh, but you have what what what's more famous as a restaurant is a Jewish restaurant, which is not kosher, which which they have had in New York also, and a very famous Montreal landmark. It's called Meish's Steakhouse. It's probably one of the most famous steakhouses in the world. It was started by a Romanian Jew. Uh, named Maish, and it's not kosher at all, but it's a very prominent uh, landmark. Other interesting side notes of Montreal is one of the most prominent individuals who lived there was Leonard Cohn, the great uh, musician, writer. He comes from a came from a Litvish and Polish background. He grew up in an Orthodox home in Shaya Shemayim Shul. His grandfather was the founder of the Canadian Jewish Congress, a very prominent individual. And his name was Eliezer. Uh, Leonard Leonard was Eliezer, and he was a Kayan. He was proud as a Kayan. And in fact, uh, he when he would do concerts in Israel, he would rattle off psukim. And 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 even his last concert he did in Israel, he even did Birkas Kayanim at the end of the concert. He considered himself Shabbos observant, even though he dabbled in in other religions and wasn't exactly Orthodox the way uh, anyone would define it. 
but he considered himself very Jewish and very proudly Jewish. He started off first as a novelist and a poet, and later on he went in the 1960s, late 1960s, he went into folk music and became one of the most popular uh, musicians in the world. And when he just passed away a couple of years ago, he actually asked in, in L.A., where he lived, he asked to be buried back in Montreal in an Orthodox burial in, in an Orthodox uh, Jewish cemetery. Another prominent Montreal Jewish family was the Bronfman family, who who became very wealthy during Prohibition in the 1920s by bootlegging. In Canada, there was nothing illegal about alcohol, and they had a uh, controlling stake in the uh, distillery company, the Seagram Whiskey Company, and the Bronfman family became extremely wealthy, again, through the bootlegging to American uh, dealers in whiskey during Prohibition, and later on, um, first was Sam Bronfman, later Charles Bronfman, later their owner of the Expos baseball team, a huge philanthropist for many, many causes, and, um, and, and, and he owned the, was a controlling owner, a part owner for many years of the Expos, the, uh, the, uh, and, and, and of course the Expos were, was later bought and to a certain extent ruined by another Jewish owner named Jeff Loria. But Bronfman, Charles Bronfman was honored with throwing out the first pitch at one of the games in the 1992 World Series in Toronto, which was the first World Series game played in Canada. And the reason they honored Mr. Bronfman was for bringing baseball to Canada, uh, even though it was in Montreal, which did not make the World Series. Um, we'll end off with another Montreal Jewish personality, um, someone who I I remember growing up with, uh, Moshe Yes. Uh, one of the best and maybe to a certain extent underrated singer artists of the last generation. He was a Lubavitcher chassid. Um, and such music classics like the Pesach Blues or My Zaidi or Ink in a Work on Saturday, uh, together with Abi, he made the Marvelous Meters Machine and the Journeys, the Rebbe of Lublin, and all these songs that uh, that he was a part of, so that it's also part of uh, Montreal Jewish history. So this was Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at uh, Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com. Uh, Geber is G-E-B-E-R-E-R. For questions, comments, sources, tours, and trips, um, we now do virtual tours also live, so you can be in touch about that too. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoy.